blessing. Whether it is your favorite food that you put in your mouth, or, or maybe it's even before you put in your mouth, your mouth starts watering, right? Even before you see it or taste it, you just smell it. You like it, and then you eat it, and you're like, oh, it's good. Or on the flip side, you can tell something is rotten before you digest it, and it ruins you by a bad taste. So the lack of taste is both a sadness and a danger. Uh, one of the most telling signs of the coronavirus was the loss of taste. I had family members and friends who lost their taste, and for some, it was kind of dangerous for a time because they couldn't really tell or even smell that there was something wrong around them. One family I knew, they developed what was called the Skittles test to try and to see if dad was getting his taste back. And so they'd have him close his eyes and they'd put like a lemon Skittle or a grape Skittle. And like, can you tell which one it is? They're like, no, no, no. And, and then he talks about the joy of the one day where he's like, suddenly he's like, oh, it's cherry. I can taste cherry again, right? Now, I think scripture brings out, and many of us know by experience, that we are sometimes in danger of spiritual loss of taste. Right? Where we lose the taste for what is good. And often that's not necessarily because of some disease hitting us, though suffering can do that. Suffering can make us lose the taste of God and why he is good. We start to question, and it's like he tastes bitter, and it's like nothing. But also, it's kind of hard to taste something when you have something else shoved in your mouth, right? If you have a, a lollipop in your mouth, it's hard to taste how good beef is. In the same way, we're going to try and argue that David is reminding the people of Israel and us in Psalm 34 that we need to have proper tastes. We need to taste God's goodness. And that often comes in the midst of trials. Now, Psalm 33 was emphasizing the Lord is creator over the whole world. His sovereignty is over all things. And so we should praise him. Psalm 34 then takes that fact that God is sovereign and puts it into our lives when we have struggles and difficulties. How should we remember that God is in control of all things? If you're taking notes, you can follow along with me. We're going to see the ABCs of remembering why Jesus is worth trusting. The ABCs. Now, you can't tell this in English. Some of your Bibles may break it down. But each verse in this psalm starts with another letter of the Hebrew alphabet. It goes A, B, C, D, each verse. It's a very poetic thing to try and draw people's attention and help them understand it. And, and I thought about it. I was like, can I make like a poetry part, like each letter of the alphabet. I'm like, I'm not that skilled. I can't be, I can't come up with this great acrostic. So we're just going to do the ABCs over the big picture of it because that fits the Hebrew idea behind this. Read along with me Psalm 34 of David when he changed his behavior before Abimelech so that he drove him out and he went away. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. The poor man cried 
And the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him, and he delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, oh children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help and the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones, but not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Again, if we're talking about the ABCs of remembering why Jesus is worth trusting, the first one that David gives is antiquity of those who feared the Lord. The antiquity, the histories, the ancient lessons of those who have feared the Lord before us teach us that it's still worth trusting Jesus today. You get that? That's title through seven. And this title matters. I know often we just jump through the titles and for some reason, in the Hebrew, the title is the first verse. For some reason, that got lost in history. But it says, of David, when he changed his behavior before Abimelech, so that he drove him out and he went away. This tells us what David was thinking of when he wrote this psalm. And David is not writing in the time where he is the mighty king overall. This isn't warrior David who's victorious. This isn't David who slow. Goliath, and everyone's praising his name. No, this is David who is getting in one problem after another, who made the great mistake of being more popular than the king. And so King Saul wants him dead. So if you would, hold your finger here in Psalm 34 and go to 1 Samuel 21. Go back to 1 Samuel 21, where we hear the story that David is talking about, the event in his life, the actual historical event. David goes on, a, on the run from Saul. He is spared a couple times. He goes to the priest of Nob, picks up Goliath's sword. And then in 21 verse 10, he decides, I got to get out of Israel. Saul keeps chasing me. I'm going to go to our enemy's land. 1 Samuel 21, verse 10. And David arose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. And the servants of Achish said to him, Is this not David, the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands? And David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. 
So he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the doors of the gate and let his spittle run down his beard. Then Akish said to his servants, Behold, you see this man is mad. Why then have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen that you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? So David flees. But the people there remember him. Now, Gath is a very important city. It's one of the main cities of the Philistines, very powerful. There was a lot of idol worship there. And perhaps most importantly, it was the hometown of Goliath. Goliath, the great warrior who David killed as a young man. And David walks into that town with Goliath's sword on his back. Kind of bold statement here. Perhaps he thought he could be a mercenary for Akish, or maybe just the enemy of his enemy would be his friend. Like here he is like, hey, yeah, I, I killed Goliath, but now they want to kill me, so let's team up. But Akish's servants quickly recognize David. They look at him and they're like, wait a second. You notice even they said it in verse 11. Is this not David, the king of the land? Isn't he the king, isn't he more powerful? Like, you know, David may have thought that Achish would think the defection of one of Saul's lieutenants would help him, but all the advisors saw differently. They, they were like, no, this is a danger to us. And they wanted him captured or dead. Now, this psalm calls the king Abimelech, but that's just a name like Pharaoh. It means son of the king. So it's a title that gets passed on from king to king to king. The particular name, this is, this is Abimelech Akish. So same person, just called by a different name. And David is afraid, horribly afraid. And so he pretends. Once again, David is running. He, he, he's trying to escape. And the man who stood up to Goliath with only God at his back, is now terrified, thinking God has abandoned him because he's one more time. He thought he would be safe, and he's not. You, you get that weight? You, you know that feeling where you go from one trial to another, and it doesn't get better. It just keeps changing. We stop believing that God can protect us, don't we? So David pretends to be crazy. He goes to the main city gates and he vandalizes them. He starts scribbling over them like a madman. And he lets saliva just hang from his mouth and run down his beard. And in a culture where beards were very revered, the only person who would do that is someone who is in a very bad place, is wrong in the head. David is brought before the king, Akish, and he's just ignored. Akish doesn't see a threat like his servants do. And so he allows David to go. And this psalm is David's commentary on that. Again, if you haven't gone back to Psalm 34, please do now. He says, after all of this has happened and he's free to go, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. He wants to make God his boast. He says, this is God. He wants to magnify God's greatness. Notice David doesn't say, wow, I'm sure lucky that plan worked. <laughs> like, I can't believe it. Like, he, he bought it. No, he said, 
God is for me. The reason I was safe is because of God. He sees men not as frightful, but the mere flesh that they are. Notice, he didn't just come up with this crazy strategy and put his hope in this activity. He says in verse 4, I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. So even while David was the master deceiver and was coming up with this plan, even as in his ter- terror, and you know what he was doing the whole time? Praying. He was like, Lord, this is a crazy idea. Please let this work. Please let this work, oh God. And so in verse five, he gives the testimony, not just of himself who saw God answered his prayers, but of all those. He says, those, or verse four, I sought the Lord, he answered me, delivered me from all my fears. Verse five, those who look to him are radiant. Their faces shall never be ashamed. The poor man cried. The Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. Those also who have prayed to God, they look at him and their faces reflect God's glory that they are radiant. They are full of joy. If a person hopes in God and looks to him for deliverance, if his heart is fixed on knowing God and loving God, this is reflected in his very face. There's something about the eyes of a person who are not depressed and lost in sorrow. They might be discouraged. They might be beaten up, but there's hope. The poor person is oppressed. They're beaten down by the world, but, verse seven, the angel of the Lord camps around those who fear him and delivers them. You'll recall the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament is the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. He is an angel who accepts worship, which only God can do. In the burning bush, it says the angel of the Lord was in the bush, and then it says God spoke from the bush. But the angel of the Lord is different from Yahweh himself, and thus we see early glimmerances of the Trinity. Jesus is around the poor who fear him. You want to know what's more terrifying than any monster, than any general, than any force? The God of the universe being next to us. Now, you're reading that. You might be thinking, that sounds really great. I I want that kind of faith. I want that kind of prayer. I I want to trust in God, but I'm going into another trial right now. Something bad is on the horizon. It's happening right now, and, and I don't feel this way. Well, feel rest assured, because you know what? David didn't either. And this is the beauty of the Psalms. The Psalms give us a theology to understand different moments of life and how we should respond. Because Psalm 56, you can turn there if you want to or just listen. Psalm 56, the title is, To the choir master, according to the dove of the far-off Timonists, a miktam of David when the Philistines seized him in Gath. You get that? Same situation, but this is the beginning, when they first seized him, before he started acting crazy. Understand? And he says in Psalm 56, verse 1, Oh, be gracious to me, O God, for man tramples on me all day long, an attacker oppresses me. My enemies trample on me all day long, for many attack me proudly. 
When I am afraid, I put my trust in you. See, both entering the trial and leaving the trial are opportunities for grace. They're opportunities for us to entrust ourselves to God. Going into it, he said, God, in my fear, I trust you. Going out of it, he says, God, you did it. The ancient stories of people remind us what we should really fear, who we should really care about, don't we, doesn't it? And, and I believe I've mentioned this before, but it just occurred to me that sto- the power of stories can be very effective in increasing our fear and our concern and telling us where to look. When I was up in Alaska with some of my family members. I decided I was going to go out for a run. I like to do that. I go running often. Um, it's a good exercise. It also just helps me clear my head. I pray. I listen to sermons. And they are telling me, hey, Chris, you really should watch out. When you're going through these trails, you really need to watch out because there are some different wild animals up here. I'm like, okay, okay, that, that sounds fine. He's like, oh, no, but you really have to watch out for the moose. I'm like, the moose? What? Like, yeah, don't, don't wear your headphones in, Chris. I'm like, oh, okay, fine. Um, I don't know. And they're like, all right, Chris, let me tell you something here. There was this lady walking through the trails a few months ago, and she came out underneath a tunnel, and on the tunnel, she looked to her right, and she saw a baby moose. She looked to her left and saw mama moose, and she tried to run, and mama moose did not allow that. And the lady was horribly injured. She was mauled by the mama moose because mama moose are even worse than mama bear. They protect their children. Now, do you think when I heard that, I paid more attention when I came from the tunnels? Do you think I listed them and I kept my AirPods out of my ear? Yeah, I did. And I think in the same way, the stories of others, both of deliverance, but we'll also see a little bit of terror of God. Help put the fear of God in us so we know who should I pay attention to? It's too easy. Church becomes this thing that we just do so often that we don't remember God is far more terrifying and God is far more trustworthy than any of the other voices. David here is fearful of another king, but he learned that it was God's presence that kept him safe. Friends, what causes you fear? What are you worried about? I was just talking to someone the other week saying how the news is just pumping fear into us. You just hear about all the bad things that are happening and could happening. What what are those things that come to your mind? Think of them. And we have to remember, are we making an effort like David did each and every morning to be thankful for something? As the psalm says, to bless the Lord to praise him, to magnify the Lord with him. Yes, the worries of the world are big. They're concerning. But is God bigger in our mind? You know, even some of you have great ideas and you've been successful. Whether it's a cool ministry that is going on, a business venture that is being accomplished, or just some plan you've come up with your teaching Some of you are homeschoolers or some of you are just trying to take your kids through their homework and you come up with this organizational thing to make it all work. And you're like, yes, my kids are learning. Sounds great. But do we turn our praise back to God for any accomplishment? 
Uh, David's plan of looking like an idiot should not have worked at all. This was a ridiculous plan. How does he go from being the warrior who defeats thousands and tens of thousands to a crazy man? Just, just conveniently when he ends up in enemy territory. Hmm. God made it work. And brothers and sisters, there's no way this crazy plan of the church being a light in darkness should work. And I know some of you feel that. You're like, you know what? The place is changing. My neighborhood is changing. My state, my country is changing. And not for the better. It's getting darker. Like, this isn't working. I'm going to do something different. And again, depending on if that's wisdom, that's okay. But the question is, is do we see this impossible task of being a light, of making disciples of this nation as being something only God can accomplish? Yes, God says in our weakness, he is strong. But we have to remember to praise him for answering our prayers. Don't we not? Let us hear these stories of others and share our own stories and praise God for them because he is worthy of our trust. Now, David tells some stories. And then secondly, he also wants to convince us with the results that it's worth trusting him. And so secondly, that B and ABC of why it's worth following Jesus is the benedictions follow those who fear the Lord. Benedictions for blessings follow those who fear the Lord. Why is it worth following Jesus? Because others have, and they can praise God. Secondly, the results of our life. There are blessings for those who fear the Lord. Verses 8 through 14. Oh, taste and see the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him lack, have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, O oh children, listen to me, and I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life, who loves many days, that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. Verse 8, he gives a command. Taste, see, the Lord is good. The word taste is stronger than just like lick. You know, you're like, you're like you know, just get a lick. You go to the, um, you go to the ice cream store and you're like, I just want to taste test. Just a little bit. Taste has a more of savor. It's, you put that bite in your mouth and you just let it sit there because it's so good. And you don't have to swallow it right away. I'm a quick eater. I tend to like to eat things quickly. My wife tends to savor them. Let's follow her example. Savor it. Savor that the Lord is good because the one who seeks God is blessed. Okay, that sounds great. I love that. I want to be the blessed man who takes refuge in him. But what does that mean to taste and see? David says in verse 9, look in your Bibles. Oh, fear the Lord, you saints, for those who fear him have no lack. Do you understand? You see that parallelism? Hebrew poetry runs in parallels. You have repetition. So the first line of verse 8 says, taste and see, matches the first line of verse 9, 
fear the Lord. Blessed is the man who takes refuge, goes with, for those who fear him have no lack. So taste and see is fear the Lord. Peter uses this in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 2 through 3. Like newborn infants long for pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. See, Paul quotes from Psalm 30, or I'm sorry, Peter quotes from Psalm 34 in 1 Peter 2, 2 through 3, saying Christians need to continue to long for God's word. We need to see it and read it and meditate on it if we had that initial taste. If, we see, if we've seen God is good, we want to keep hearing from him. And 1 Peter is all about suffering and trials and difficulties. And he says, in the midst of all those difficulties, what should you do to taste the Lord? In 1 Peter 2.1, he says, put away sins such as malice, deceit, envy, slander, because... God is good. See, that, that tasting is, the, that first taste is the venture into faith. It's not just a nibble and spitting out, but it's committing to putting God fully into yourself. And if you do that, if you fully say, I want to taste the Lord, you know what you will do? What he tells you to do. And, and you see this here. He gives a long list of things to do in verse 11 through 14. Before he gets there, he gives one more reason. Let me convince you why you should do this things. Because lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Lions were the strongest animal. Young lions were the best hunters. If anyone would have meat, it was the young lions. But even they may suffer. But those who follow Jesus, who do what Jesus says, will not lack what they need. Okay, David, I want to do this. I want to follow, I want to follow God. I want to have no lack. What does it mean to fear the Lord? Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. This is language of the Proverbs. This is probably how Solomon learned how to, as the father, teach his son from his father, David. This is wisdom here. Do you want to see the good in verse 12? Do you want to taste it? Then verse 13, keep your tongue from evil and your lip from speaking any lies. This is exactly what Peter was using and saying. He's like, what does it mean to taste God, to fear God, you agree with God that these things are wrong and evil and you put them away. And instead, you seek to do righteousness and speak the truth. We often describe it this way, according to Ephesians chapter four, it says you are to put off the old self, be renewed in your mind and put on the new self. Stop doing, think about God and start doing what's right. Following God's ways have the best results. And we need to be convinced of this. We need the wisdom because 
Our tastes need to grow at times. Our tongues have around 10,000 taste buds, and they all work in combination to give us what we like or do not like. But do you notice that your tastes probably haven't stayed the same in your life? Very few toddlers like green leaves. Very few toddlers like spinach, right? And um, I know for sure, I remember clearly having a taste of coffee in my younger years and thinking it tasted horrible. And now I love it black. The blacker, the better. I don't know. It just has slowly changed over the years, right? And because of sin, none of us are born with a taste for God's goodness. None of us love God because as John 3 tells us, we see the light and we hate it. We reject it. And God in his kindness, as a pastor Yuri has been preaching about, draws us in and he opens our eyes and convinces us, but it takes time for your taste to change, doesn't it? A.W. Tozer, the great pastor and theologian, a century ago wrote, the Bible should never be an end in itself, but in a means to bring men to an intimate and satisfying knowledge of God that they may enter into him, that they may delight in his presence, they may taste and know the inner sweetness of the very God himself in the core and center of their hearts. You know how you acquire a taste for God's goodness? By looking to his word and seeing how good he is. I... I I think we all want this blessing, right? We, we want to have blessed lives. But Martin Luther famously said, we must know God as enemy before we know him as friend. We have to see the difficulty. We have to fear God to actually be able to taste goodness. And the key to God's treasure is fearing him. Tim Chester, pastor in England, wrote, to fear God is to respect him, to worship him, to trust and to submit to God. The fear of God is the response to his glory, holiness, power, and his wrath. The fear of the Lord is recognizing that he is so awesome, powerful, holy, and good that we should serve and worship him more than anything or anyone. You caught that. He said, key part to fear God is to submit to him, obeying his commands when your heart is screaming, I don't want to do that, or I, if I do that, this will happen. But the problem is too often we, we do is we just say, well, this is what I should do. And I'm going to do it because I should do it. That's what it says. I'll do it. And, and there's a place for that. Don't get me wrong, but a key part is the fear of God must come first. We got to see why we should trust God. It's not just, well, lying is bad. The God of the universe never lies. And so he tells us to be like him. I don't want to be lied to by God. So why should I ever consider lying to anyone else? Fathers, and it's a Father's Day. And this is a great opportunity for you. You can be like David here saying, come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. 
way out why God's ways are better. And some of us, we're losing that taste, aren't we? It's hard. We're, we're instead longing for the taste of cheap gas, low prices, and less politics, right? It's like, just give me that. But brothers and sisters, no matter where we find ourselves, we have to long for God's blessing that comes from doing what he says, irregardless of the circumstances. Yes, we can pray for better circumstances, but the question is, will I be God's type of man and God's type of woman in the midst of this situation? Now, some of you have been through these kind of trials in the world before. You've walked through things and you're like, yep, I remember this event and this event. And, and it's your job to tell the stories. Parents, it's your job to prepare your kids as they go through those first big trials Grandparents, it's your job to reinforce it. Friends, it's your job to share and say, hey, I've been through this. And when the threat of losing your job is on the table, fear the Lord. When your children reject you because of your stance as a Christian, fear the Lord. When temptations come against you, fear the Lord. It's so much better. We need to tell ourselves that. Now, if verses 12 through 14, this section, is all about why we need to trust God, it leads to the climax in verse 15. Why are we doing these things? Because the Lord's face is towards us. The C of the reasons to trust is the causes for fear of the Lord, verses 15 through 20. He's going to end this psalm, verses 15 through 22, explaining the different causes. Why should you fear the Lord? Why should you listen to him? These are some very strong statements about fearing Yahweh. It says, verse 15, the eyes of the Lord are towards the righteous and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and he delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and he saved the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. God's eyes see what is hidden from man. He sees. It's been said that Google knows more about you than your spouse does because Google tracks every one of your searches and clicks, and it's processing this whole big algorithm and database of who you are so they can target you best. But God is able to not just see what you search for, what you click on, but what you think and what you want. And God is so kind that his ears are toward the cry of the righteous. God listens when you cry. But 
with the bad, good news comes some bad news. In verse 16, the face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the very memory of them from the earth. Psalm 11, verse 5, says it very simply. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. I know we sometimes say the Lord love, you know, love, love this, um, hate the sin, love the sinner, but the Bible says God hates the one who does evil. The Bible states we're all born enemies of God. We, we acquire our sinful nature from our first parents, Adam and Eve. And then we choose to sin just like them. So Ecclesiastes 9.3 says, the hearts of men are full of evil. Isaiah 59 verse 2 says, your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. You may look to the world and be like, I'm not as evil as that person over there. And yet, Look back at verse 13. What does it mean to fear God? To keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Now, I want to challenge us and think, really, oh, have I really always kept my tongue from every evil saying? Do I lie to make my life easier? So often we do. You know, even the thoughts of our hearts I've often had the discussion with people, and we've talked about this repeatedly, like, well, why doesn't God just stop the evil? If God is good, why does he not stop evil? And you're like, well, but if we did, where would God end with the evil? Like, just the big stuff, like Hitler. Like, oh, stop that. But what about the angry thoughts I get against the person who cut me off on the freeway or who took that last donut on the table that I really wanted, or whatever else it is you want. But we, we do that, don't we? Like we have sinful thoughts. And the Bible says God is too good to look on any evil. Even the smallest amount is appalling to him. And there is a day coming when justice will be done. It is a great comfort to know that God cares that Jesus himself will return and he will repay the evil done against you. He doesn't let evil go on forever. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 6 through 10, it says, God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to those who are afflicted as well to us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven, with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. 2 Thessalonians 1, 6. God is not just a forgiving God. He's also a God of justice, which I think we all want. We want justice. We want evil to be stopped. But he cares for the lowly. In verse 17, Psalm 34, it says, when the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears. He delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord, it is near to the brokenhearted. He saves the crushed in spirit. 
This is perhaps one of the most comforting truths in the Bible repeated again and again that kind of blow apart our wrong view of God. See, God is not interested in the strong and powerful being brought to his side. He cares about the broken, the beaten, the lost, the lowly. God does not want the prideful, I am so much better than everyone else person. He wants the person like Isaiah who says, woe is me, for I am a sinner. The, the, the Psalms give us a theology to know God's real care for people. He hears our cries. He's not silent with those who interact with his word. And the suffering Christian, when they suffer, you draw near to Jesus himself. Now, verse 20 helps us remember and not be surprised when we face trial after trial like David did. Verse 19 says, Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. Oh, they will be many, won't they? Your trials continue. You go from one, I think it's often said, you're either coming out of a trial or you're going into a trial. Right? We have many but God promises to get us through them all. In 1 Corinthians 10, 13, a wonderful verse to memorize. You need to know this one. It says, no temptation is overtaking you except what is common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond what you are able, but will always provide a means of escape that you might endure it, that you might get through it. Because... God the Father took his son, Jesus, through those same kinds of sufferings. Now, verse 20 here, that he keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken, is quoted on the cross in John 19, 34. The apostle John, under inspiration from the Holy Spirit, he so God was working his words, wrote John 19, 34. One of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. The testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth. John saying, I saw it. It really happened. That you may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. Interesting. Interesting. Uh, he's using this because this righteous man, many are the afflictions of the righteous, is singular. Righteous is singular. You'll, you'll notice is he keeps all his bones. He, singular. Lord delivers him, singular. This is Jesus, first and foremost. And when they were doing theology, both David and John. They're, they're thinking through this. They're not just recording incidents. They're thinking, what does this mean about God? And Jesus was dying without his bones being broken. And they began to go, but what, what pure animal takes away the sins of the people? Like Jesus. What is Jesus is the Passover lamb. And the Passover lamb, it was written in Numbers 9, verse 12, they shall leave none of it until the morning, nor break any of its bones. According to all the statue of the Passover, they shall keep it. 
The Passover lamb's bones would not be broken. And so John and David are connecting these theological threads together to remind us suffering can be great. Sin in this world, both your sin and other people's sin, are going to cause so much pain. But the righteous one will be rescued because Jesus died to make us righteous. How can someone who takes refuge in God not be condemned by God? Because we're sinners, right? Sometimes as you become a Christian, you actually see your sin more. And then if you haven't already, give it a little time. You will. You grow in faith. You see greater. I am unworthy. But verse 21, affliction will slay the wicked and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord, verse 22, redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. You see the connection there? The wicked, those who hate righteousness, will be condemned. Those who trust God will be redeemed, not condemned. We know that this shouldn't work. We shouldn't be saved as Christians because we're not better than others. But he redeems the life of his servants. He buys it back with the power of his own blood. Not because of what they've done, but because of what Jesus has done. To be a Christian means not that we are worthy, but we follow Jesus who is worthy to become like him. And you know what Jesus was? Crucified. John Newton, the writer of Amazing Grace, famously said, can we wish, if it were possible, to walk in a path strewed with flowers when Jesus' path was strewed with thorns? To follow Jesus means we will have reoccurring afflictions, but he will redeem our life. See, we should follow Jesus because everyone suffers this side of heaven, but those who fear the Lord will be brought through. I know we Americans struggle with afflictions going on. And I was reading this quote from Nancy DeMoss Wolgamoth, who said, with chronic, severe, unrelenting health issues, we can say he has never kept us from the torrents, but he has kept us anchored in them. I have learned not to hate the thing that causes me to cast myself on God. Brothers and sisters, we must push back on the simple lie around us that is self-satisfaction. That is, just give me comfort and my life will be great. There are many struggles. Mental health issues are struggles. Finances matter. But more than anything, the question is, will I be willing to become more like Jesus in this trial? Summing it all up, we've seen antiquity tells us the story of fearing the Lord. Blessings follow those who fear the Lord. And there are many causes and reasons for fearing the Lord, which will include either his smile or his judgment. After recovering from COVID, many people taste come back right away. I have family members who did. Others have not. And they have gone over and over again, having what they have a consistent problem, even months later, year later, everything smells weird. 
everything tastes like rotten meat, sulfur, or sewage. They're calling this post-COVID parosmia, parosmia, to be precise. And the treatment is fascinating. You know what they do? They do a type of physical therapy with the tongue and the nose where they take a very strong scent and they have you put it on you or smell it 20 seconds, twice a day, every day. And it creates a kind of physical therapy where you're like, I know what this lemon should taste like. I stick it on my tongue, 20 seconds, off. I know what this strawberry should taste like. Stick it on, off. And it's a painfully slow process. But for some people, a lot of people, it seems to actually be reprogramming their mind again to say, this is what a strawberry is supposed to taste like. Brothers and sisters, if you, stop to, if you start to lose the taste of what is good, I'm sure you'll put in the work. If you lost the ability to taste strawberries and bananas and blueberries and steak and hamburgers, you would put in the work. How much more should we do if we lose the taste for what is morally good? for what is godly. As we gather for baptisms, even, we are reminded this is a work of God. These people were not saved because of themselves. They were rescued from their death because of Jesus. So hear the stories, hear the statements of belief, and remind yourself again, yes, I believe that. There's one reason why we keep reading God's word and we keep coming to church, to be reminded and coordinated our tastes again that we may believe what God says is good. Let me pray. Oh Lord, we pray that you would allow us to praise your name well, that we might believe and taste that you are good. We cannot do this on our own, oh Lord. And so we pray, please work in us to the praise of your name, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, we're going to have the people with, who are getting baptized come up to be ready to change. We have women on this side and men on this side. So if you're going to participate in baptism, if you could come up. Um, and in a moment, those of you who are helping set up the stage, we're going to sing uh, our closing hymn. And if you can help come up right after that. So if you wouldn't mind gathering on the sides to get the baptismal ready. We are going to finish our time with He Will Hold Me Fast, hymn number 300.